Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. When It Mattered is a podcast on how leaders deal with and learn from adversity. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. My guest today is Frank Shankwitz, the creator and a co-founder of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, a global charity that fulfills wishes of children with life-threatening illnesses. Shankwitz has taken the lessons learned from his early years of extreme poverty and homelessness and has spent most of his adult life giving back. At five years old, I was in kindergarten on a playground and a lady grabbed me, dragging me. She said, I'm your mother. I have no idea who this lady was and actually kidnapped me off the playground, uh, screaming and fighting. Um, but when you're five years old and get a thump on the head, you kind of be quiet. Uh, and she said, we're going to Arizona. A U.S. Air Force veteran, Shankwitz served as an Arizona Highway Patrol motorcycle officer and a homicide detective with the Arizona Department of Public Safety, retiring after 42 years on the force. Shankwitz has received many awards for his work with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, the White House Call to Service Award from both President George W. Bush and President Donald J. Trump, and the Making a Difference in the World Award from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, just to name a few. Mr. Shankwitz, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Your early years, as I said, were filled with poverty and homelessness and separation from one or other parent. Could you describe what those early years were like? Well, interesting. Uh, I never thought they were that bad, but Hollywood made a movie about it, so I guess they were. But I was born in Chicago, and uh, at two years old, my mother divorced my father and left. We never knew where. Um, had no idea where she went. Uh, in later years, I kind of figured out, because she would never tell me, um, that she went to Arizona. Um, ages two to five were just very happy years with uh, living with my grandparents while my dad worked, dad on weekends, aunts, uncles, cousins, just a lot of fun times. Uh, at five years old, I was in kindergarten on a playground, and a lady grabbed me, dragging me. She said, I'm your mother. I have no idea who this lady was, and actually kidnapped me off the playground. Uh, screaming and fighting, um, but when you're five years old and get a thump on the head, you kind of be quiet. Uh, and she said, we're going to Arizona, but she took a strange route to Arizona, and we ended up, what I later learned, was Michigan, Upper Michigan, Upper Peninsula. And this is a whole different lifestyle. Our home for that summer, she introduced me to, was a tent in a campground right on Lake Michigan shores. And I'm gone from a real nice city-type livelihood all of a sudden nothing and uh, again very traumatic for a while especially very little to eat uh, no food and she's gone all day she's working in this one little village that was close by leaving by myself but it turned out to be somewhat of a, a good thing in the long run because I had to start learning survival self-survival um, I just explored I, I learned about the country life I learned about the woods I'm watching other people what to do. I even taught myself to swim by just watching other people. And I actually began to kind of enjoy that until the winter hit. And then she found, because it's just we can't stay in the snow uh, there in the tent, but she found just an old, old farmhouse, drafty and everything. And that was like that for the several years. 
up until 10 years old uh, when my mother, when my father found us. And he went in to get the local sheriff to have her arrested. And during that time, she threw everything we had, in, which was a much, in a car, and we started that journey to Arizona. Uh, it took six weeks. And again, I had no, really no idea where Arizona was. I had watched the Western movies every now and then. But, and the reason it took so long is she we'd drive for half a day. She'd be low on money. She'd get a job at a local restaurant as a waitress, uh, get enough tip money for gas, and off we go. And during that whole journey, we're sleeping in a car. Just get outside of a little town called Sligman, Arizona, up on uh, northern part of Arizona on old Route 66. And she ran out of gas completely. And the first time I'd ever seen her cry. And she said, I have no money. We have no food. We have nothing. I don't know what we're going to do. A rancher stopped by, asked what's going on. And he said, I'll go get some gas. You follow me to the ranch house. And you can stay with us till we get settled. Now, Seligman, Arizona, again, just a little town of 500. Hasn't grown much since. And this is in the 1953 now. Uh, 500 people, predominantly Mexican, Indian. It was a railroad town, a ranching town. And the rancher did take us in. We got to sleep for six weeks. Our our bedroom was the kitchen floor on a couple bedrolls. Uh, but to me, this, this was just great. I mean, it was warm. We had some food. I mean, they were helping us out as much as they could. And I enrolled in school because I had jumped from school to school. And this was actually the first town we had ever lived in. We'd always lived where somewhere out in the country. And I got a job as a dishwasher, 10 years old. And my mother got a job as a maid. And after about six weeks, they found an old wrecked travel trailer for us to live in, fix it up enough where uh, we had cold water, um, no shower or anything like that. In fact, didn't even have indoor plumbing. But uh, we had other facilities we could use. And that's when you you met somebody who would turn out to have an incredible influence on your life. Exactly. Uh, so at 10 years old, washing dishes, I'm, I'm getting off one late one afternoon. And I'm watching a man. I've been watching a little Mexican man across the street building something. He's got the frame up and starting on the interior work. And I just went over and I said, hi, what are you doing? And he said, what's your name? And I said, my name is Frank. He said, well, I'm Juan. And from now on, your name is Pancho, meaning Frank in Spanish. And just a smile on this guy's face. And I immediately liked him. He said, grab a camera, kid. And I said, I, I don't know what to do because I had never had a father figure teach me anything like carpentry or the type of skills like that. And Juan became my father, my mentor figure. He really took me under his wing, as they call it, and just taught me so many things. Uh, the biggest thing, work ethic, but integrity, character. Uh, and after we, he introduced me to music. He introduced me to sports, which I had never played before. Just got me involved in all the little things. And along with the other town people, and like I say, it takes, they say it takes a village to raise a child. Well, that was true in this little town of Sligman. Why do you think he took such an interest in your life? I don't know. I, I really don't know. Uh, I mean, he had children of his own. Um, but that was just the way it was with these small towns, as I learned. Especially when, when you're by yourself or, or whatever it might be. Everybody is always helping one another. And that was a big thing that he said. And after a couple of years, he said, Frank, when you can, I want you to give back. 
Now, this is 1950s. This is, you know, give back is a popular term today, but it wasn't then. I said, well, what do you mean give back? Oh, we don't have a thing. The poor people are helping us. And he said, you don't have to have money to give back. And this is the biggest lesson. He said, you can give back your time. And he gave an example. Look at Mrs. Sanchez, the widow Sanchez. She's always bringing you beans and tortillas, helping to feed you, helping you out a little bit. But look at her yard. It's a mess. You're big enough. You can go over there and clean that yard, weed it, clean it up, help paint that porch. The same with Mrs. Ortega. They're always helping you out. They've got an old caboose from the Santa Fe line. It's going to be their home now. And they're trying to paint that. You can go over and help them and get that out. Give back. You don't have to have money. And that lesson stayed with me my whole life. And hard work, too. You worked some really hard jobs at an incredibly young age, including for the Santa Fe Railroad when, when during that time in Arizona. Not a lot of kids would be able to pull that off. What was that like? Well, it was fun. <laughs> and what you're talking about, it was a division point for the Santa Fe Railroad, meaning the uh, trains, the freight trains, the passenger trains, when they came in there, they would change crews. And then they would also add, if they're going across the mountains eastbound, they would add the big steam locomotives in those days to help pull the freight trains over the mountains. And in the engines itself, there was always a big ice cooler in their water cooler. And the crew always hated hauling ice up and down. These things are so heavy. And we found out that if we did that for him, me and me and a couple other kids, we'd get a quarter. Now, that's a lot of money for a pocket money because every money I meant as a dishwasher went it helped my mother. So we got a quarter. That was our spending money. And then also I got into junior rodeo, uh, bull riding, and entry fee back then was $3. But I would just find jobs all over town. I'd sweep, I'd mop, I'd help, whatever I could do, the little businesses around town besides my job because that was my extra spending money. So it was a lot of hard work, but it was fun. It was rewarding. The next big change in your life happened when you finished eighth grade and your mother came back. What was that like? Well, backing up just a little bit, at seventh grade, she left me. She said, I can't afford you anymore. You're on your own. And this would be devastating to, I think, most kids. It was to me. I go to Juan and I say, what do I do? And he said, I, I heard what's going to happen. He said, I've arranged for you to live with the widow Sanchez. She's going to charge you $20 a week. You make $26 a week for the first time you're going to have six extra dollars in your pocket but he also said and this is the lesson that stayed ever always learn to turn the negative to the positive I said what do you mean by that my mother just left my home just left our trailer and he said living with the widow Sanchez you're going to have your own bedroom for the first time that's a positive she's the best cook in town that's a positive definitely You've got indoor plumbing at your place. That's a positive. And she has the first television set in Seligman, Arizona. Wow, that's a big positive. So I always learn that lesson. Whatever happens, the negative things work to turn that to the positive, a lesson taught from Juan Delgadillo. And then your, your mother came back. She came, At the end of eighth grade, she came back up and she said, I need your help. I need you to move to Prescott, Arizona. This is the town we're in now. It's up in the mountains in northern Arizona. Uh, she said, I, I can't afford to live. Like, I don't make enough money. I need you to move and get a job, full-time job, and help support us, meaning her. And I did. And one, one thing I told, we didn't have a close relationship, my mother and I. We never did. But Juan said, remember, she's your mother. You respect her. You always respect her. 
And I did. I remembered that lesson. Uh, came to Prescott, got a job right away at a grocery store as a bag boy, and eventually over the years ended up with an assistant manager training by the time I graduated high school. But again, in Prescott, so many people helping me out, my coaches, my teachers, uh, just kind of take me under their wing and, and just appreciate everything they're doing for me. And then you ended up in the U.S. Air Force and then on to Motorola. And then uh, in a strange twist, you wound up with the Arizona Highway Motorcycle Patrol as an officer. How did that happen? Well, I, I, when I got out of the Air Force, Motorola was looking for people with top secret clearance, which I had, uh, because this was the Atlas Missile Program now. And they were having trouble finding graduate engineers could not pass a drug test. Now, this is in the middle 60s, early 70s, uh, the days of sex, drugs, rock, rock and roll. And Motorola were looking for us. Uh, they hired us, uh, sent us to school. We used a GI Bill also for college. And just a great job, just a great career. Ended up in statistical engineering, which uh, my math teachers in high school just got a big kick out of. Uh, determined failure rates on certain missile components. Uh, like I said, great job, excellent money. And several of my friends had joined the Highway Patrol from high school days and kept saying, Frank, with your background, you should really join the patrol. You've got a police background, which I did in the Air Force. And I said, guys, I'm making one week what you make in a month, and I'm just not going to do that salary change. But I got bored at Motorola. Number one, I'm living in the city. I don't like the big city of Phoenix um, just because of the crowd and everything. I'm a small-town boy. And it was the same thing over and over, even though I could say Motorola was excellent. And just on a whim, I put an application for the Highway Patrol, and out of 1,000 applications, they chose 50. And again, the majority of those failed because of the fact they couldn't pass the drug test. And said, okay, I'll accept that position. Obviously, the greatest decision I ever made because 42 years later, I retired. But it was also a life-threatening decision. You had a motorcycle crash that literally flatlined you. What was that like? And how did that happen? The Highway Patrol started a, we wanted to start a motorcycle unit. And it was a 10-man squad that we worked the whole state of Arizona two weeks of one town, two weeks of another. And we initially, in fact, trained with California Highway Patrol. Our equipment was identical. Our uniforms almost identical. Uh, but one of our duty assignments uh, was a little town called Park, Arizona. It's during Easter break. A town of 2000 gets flooded by kids from all over California. And these are the college, high school students. Uh, growing to 85,000 in this stretch of a 17-mile highway. And in a uh, chase, a high-speed chase of the drunk driver, 85 miles an hour, when another drunk driver pulled directly in front of me, I couldn't do what they call a break and escape, and hit him broadside at 85 and was pronounced dead at the scene. Um, I was told later the crash was spectacular. But we're talking now, so, but an off-duty emergency room nurse uh, stopped at the scene. My partner tried to revive me. He couldn't do it. He called in the code 963A, officer killed in the line of duty. And she said, let me try. And he said, he's dead. And while we're talking, obviously, she didn't listen and performed almost four minutes of CPR and brought me back to life. So you literally died and came back to life. Yes, yes. And that must have been profound it would be profound for anybody. I mean, did it make you rethink your life in any way? Well, it, it did. The big, it, it took about several 
months uh, for recovery on that. I had a uh, massive brain injury, skull fracture, broken bones, a lot of missing skin. And it didn't scare me as far as wanting to go back to work, but during the time just before going and actually go, released, going back to work, and I had to go to the counselor, psychological counselor, to make sure that, you know, psychologically, mentally, we're okay to go back to work. And one of the things she said to me at one of the last sessions was, you realize you died, and God spared you for a reason, and now it's up to you to find that reason why you were spared. And kind of a depression state right then. But two years later, I found that reason when I met a little boy who inspired me to start the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Tell us about this young boy. This was 1980, and you met him. And what was his story, and, and how did you meet him? Yeah, his name was Chris. Chris was seven years old. Chris had terminal leukemia. And his heroes were Ponch and John from the television show Chips, which was very popular during that period. Uh, in fact, when we would go on our, our 10-man unit, we'd be two-man teams going throughout Arizona, the grade school kids. Hey, Ponch. Hey, John. It was it was great. It was a great PR talking to the kids. And he told his mother, when I grow up, I want to be a highway patrol motorcycle officer, just like Ponch and John. And for people that don't know about Chips, it was a, a show on NBC that ran several years about two California highway patrol motorcycle officers and their adventures. Uh, the demographic was about 7 to uh, 14 with the kids, and because of Eric Estrada, who played Ponch, uh, 7 to about 50 with the ladies. <laughs> but And, and I, I'd never met this boy, and a friend of the family contacted the Arizona Highway Patrol and explained, we have this 7-year-old boy. Is there any way he can meet a motorcycle officer? And I just happened to be that motorcycle officer that they chose. Now, I had no idea what to expect. I, I got a phone call that this little boy, we've got permission to pick him up in our state police helicopter at his hospital and fly him to our headquarters building, and we want you standing by when the helicopter lands to meet this little boy. The helicopter approaches. I see this big grin looking out the door, and I expected our paramedics to help him out of the helicopter. This little boy had just come off IVs. Helicopter lands, the doors open, and this little boy just runs over to the motorcycle. Big grin. Hi, I'm Chris. Can I get on your motorcycle? Well, of course you can, Chris. Now, he had watched the show Chip so much, and as I said, our equipment was identical. He said, this is the red light. It's going to turn around. This is the siren. This is this. This is that. What's in your saddlebag? The same as Ponch. And we're all laughing. He's having a good time. And I look at his mother, and she's crying. And I didn't understand it. Then it dawns on me, she has your seven-year-old back. He's just having so much fun, typical seven-year-old, instead of laying in a bed with IVs. And you only knew him for a brief period before he died. And, and, and when he died, it had a major impact on you and your fellow officers in the, in the Arizona State Police. Yes, and, and going back a little bit, he became the first and only honorary Highway Patrol motorcycle officer in that time in the history of the Highway Patrol complete with a custom-made uniform we had made for him, his own badge, and especially his motorcycle wings. That was the most important thing. In fact, when he came up to me after we presented the uniform, which was the following day, and he said, I wish I could be a motorcycle officer. He's a police officer, but I wish I could be a motorcycle officer. And that's the first time I heard that word, wish. And we just teased him a little bit. We set up some traffic cones. We found out he had a little 
battery-operated motorcycle that his mother had for him in place of a wheelchair. Uh, we put him through the test. He came back and I passed. Yes, you did, Chris. When do I get my wings? And those were custom-made. It would take a couple days. I get the call that the wings are ready. I pick them up. I get another call that Chris is in the hospital. He's not going to survive the day. I'm authorized to go to the hospital. I went to his room. His uniform is hanging by his bed. Just as I pinned on the wings, he came out of the coma. Am I a motorcycle officer now? Yes, you are, Chris. His wish had become true, and he passed away just a couple hours later. And I always like to think maybe those wings helped carry him to heaven. And and after he died, the police uh, had a ceremony for him, and you were at the funeral. Yes, the our, our commanders learned that Chris was going to be buried in a little town, Kwan, Illinois, and they contacted me and my partner, so we would like you to go back and give him a full police funeral. We have lost a fellow officer, uh, which we did. Now, the this is before Internet. But the media picked this up, and we were met by Illinois State Police, City Police, County Police to give this little boy a full police funeral. He was buried with honors in uniform. In fact, his grave marker reads, Chris Gracious, Arizona Trooper. But flying home, I just started thinking about, here's a boy who had a wish, and we made it happen. Why can't we do that for other children? And that's when the idea of the Make-A-Wish Foundation was born, maybe 36,000 feet over Kansas or something. And that was uh, 39, almost 40 years ago. How many children has the foundation granted wishes to since then? It's just amazing. All because of this one little boy. And we are now worldwide over a half a million wishes just because of this one boy. That's an incredible statistic. Uh, do you remember a couple of your early favorite wishes that you granted? Well, yes. And there's so many. And I was the first president and CEO. And... Also, I had to make a career choice. I, I couldn't do both. Um, and after three year, a couple of years, I just said, we've got to turn this over to professional people. Surround yourself with people smarter than you. Because we had never taken a salary, and we realized we had to start paying some people. But our, actually, to answer your question, our first official wish um, is probably my favorite because it opened up a door that I'll explain. And this is, again, a seven-year-old boy. And when we started this foundation, it was for children with terminal illnesses. Uh, none of the children survived. Uh, leukemia was a death sentence in those days, along with the other cancers. And now through the grace of God and modern medicine, that's why we changed our mission to children with life-threatening illnesses. More and more children are surviving. But again, a seven-year-old little boy named Frank, nicknamed Bopsy Salazar. And I was his wish granter. In other words, the one that went out to interview him to find out what his wish actually was. And just the neatest little boy. And he, he wanted to ride in a hot air balloon. He wanted to um, be a fireman. I laughed, a fireman? I'm a policeman. You want to be a fireman? <laughs> and he wanted to go to Disneyland. Well, we only grant one wish, but we're starting to get so much press that I told our board we're going to grant all three wishes for this little boy because we're going to get so much press out of this, which we did. He got to be the fireman. Phoenix Fire Department just went all out to make him an official fireman. He got to ride in a hot air balloon. I knew the friends up in my area that had the hot air balloon. But going to Disneyland was a little different. We had never really thought about a travel wish. And we had very little money in our bank account. Our secretary kept calling the Disney people. 
uh, and their public relations were the Make-A-Wish Foundation. We'd like to have we got a boy in a wheelchair. Could he get in front of the lines plus free admission? We learned they turned us down, and we learned later they get these requests, a bogus request all the time. So they're very careful what they do. Had never heard of us. And the secretary said, I, I don't know what to do. I said, well, let me let me call Disney. Give me the number. And I called and got the uh, secretary for public relations. Who is this? I, instead of saying, I'm Frank Shankwitz, the president CEO of Make-A-Wish Foundation, I said, this is Officer Frank Shankwitz, Arizona Highway Patrol. And it kind of got her attention. She said, what can I help you with? I said, no, I need to talk to your director of public relations. What about? I said, I have a warrant for one of your people. Well, guess who I got to talk to immediately? But the minute I got the gentleman on the phone, I just said, I just lied to you. Here's my name. Here's my badge number. Here's my supervisor's name and his phone number. All you have to do is call right now, and I will be terminated. But will you please listen to my story? Well, they did listen to my story. Disney had Bopsy over there and his mother. She's a single mom. The press picked this up, and that really started the boost for Make-A-Wish Plus, Disney now, almost 40 years later, one of the biggest sponsors, I mean, just all these years, that's supporting us. And hundreds of thousands of kids have gone to one of the Disney World, Disney Land, whatever, just because if you're going to lie, at least qualify to lie a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And you said there there was another wish that had a strange way of uh, coming back around in your life. Well, yeah, we did. And thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, we just, well, just, we, we, 24, 2017, we completed our filming our movie, Wishman, um, which was filmed up in Northern Arizona, my area. And I was one of the, I was technical supervisor and consulting producer, location scout, and working with a script supervisor. And usually every day on the set, her and I were one of the first people on the set. And we would look at the set design for the day. We'd look at the uh, um, dialogue, the script, or the continuity if we're continuing a scene. And she knew who I was. And this is a lovely young lady named Kennedy Del Toro out of New Mexico originally. And the third day into the uh, filming, and she, I said, good morning. She came up and gave me a hug and started crying. I mean, really crying. Kennedy, what's wrong? What happened? She said, I'm a wish child. Now the people around us, now everybody's starting to cry because you talk about a full circle. (laughs) A movie is being made about my life. We have a wish child as part of the crew. And when she was, uh, I think was uh, 13 or 14, uh, she had a life-threatening illness and she wanted to be a, learn how to be an actress and go to Hollywood. That was her wish, but she was too ill. When she turned 17, she went into total remission and the New Mexico chapter said, you still got your wish. You want to do that? Yes, I do. She went to Hollywood. She, they sent her to a acting school. But during the school, she became very interested in the technical side. And when the school was over, a director said, would you like to be an intern uh, for, as a script supervisor, which she had never heard of? Well, yes, she did. And halfway through the summer, uh, one day the regular script supervisor didn't show up. She took over for the job as an intern. The next day, the lady didn't show up again. The director said, she's fired, you're hired. And this young lady is all over the world on film projects, just having the greatest time. That must have been extraordinary to see a wish you granted. And, and here was this person, you know, healthy and successful and and inspired probably by the wish that she was given. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we stay in touch. And 
Well, we had the premiere in Hollywood of the movie. I made sure that she was one of the special guests and introduced her up at the stage uh, on our Q&A following the screening. And the crowd just went wild. I mean, it was just a great story. I'm so happy for her. And I know the movie was really probably a, a wonderful uh, next chapter in your life, but it also was uh, had a negative impact in that you parted ways with the Make-A-Wish Foundation as their official spokesman. Well, uh, yeah, and, and after, like I said, when we started hiring the people, and this is 1982, 83, I became a, uh, what, what they call wish ambassador. Uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation would send me all over the United States, even as far as Guam and Saipan and Tinian, uh, for meet and greets, for galas, for keynote speaking. And it was just when the movie started, they wanted to take control of the movie, which the studio wouldn't allow. And they just got real upset with me for some reason. Um, and just, I'm not part of it anymore, officially. Now, I still promote the Make-A-Wish Foundation all I can. It's not about me. And whatever their issue is, that's fine, but we it's about the kids. And I still raise everywhere I speak. I'm on a speaking circuit continuously. Uh, I promote the foundation along with other foundations I'm associated with. And uh, anything we can do, it's about the kids, not about me. Are you sad that your relationship with them ended and that's something you helped start, you are no longer formally associated with? Uh, a little bit, but I mean, it's not something I dwell on, and it changes. Uh, some days you're the frog, some days you're the prince that comes back and forth. Um, but it's also given me the opportunity now to advance to help start other nonprofits and be on the board for other nonprofits, something that I wasn't able to do before. So it's given me the opportunity to branch out and to help so many other things that we're involved with. Let's go back to your parents. How did your relationship with your parents and and also uh, your relationship with, with Juan, I think we have a lot of important loose ends we want to tie up in this story, particularly your mother, considering that she <laughs> essentially kidnapped you from your dad and then abandoned you and made you work at one point, took all your money, and generally was not the most ideal poster mom, at least in the early years. Well, yeah, and again, like I said, uh, we never even later years, never had a close relationship, but I respected her and showed respect because she was my mother. Um, but as she got into her more senior years, like about 60 years old, she got very involved. She was living in the Phoenix area and all of a sudden got very involved with veterans, the VA hospital down there, uh, going in and volunteering, spending a lot of hours helping the veterans, uh, even driving a van, picking them up, taking them back and forth to places. Uh, in fact, even received the award from the VA out of uh, Washington, D.C. for all the hours that she spent. She also got very involved with what's called a crisis nursery. And these were um, little babies. They call them crack babies, that the mothers were addicted to crack, cocaine, and so on, and would comfort them, would just cuddle them, would spend hours just holding them as, as they're going through these withdrawals. So she became a whole different person. And lived till the age of 90, and um, we, we just stayed in contact all the time. I tried to help her as much as I could. Again, she's my, my mother. I respect her. Did you ever have any ill will towards her for the, the treatment of you in your early years? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, someone said to me several years ago, having a weird mother helps develop character. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a mother, so I'm comforted by that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, not at all. If if she hadn't, if my life hadn't been what it is, 
uh, maybe none of this would ever happen. And especially learning how to take care of myself. And what about your dad and Juan? Well, we'll, we'll start with Juan first. And again, I stayed in contact with him. Juan passed away uh, about 10 years ago now. Uh, he lived to his middle 80s. But I stayed in contact with him continuously. Um, I would go up to this little town of Seligman. And then when he passed away, I'm now very close friends with his family, uh, with one of his sons and, and their family. And in the movie, there's only three names in the movie that are real, myself, my wife, Kitty, and Juan. And I lobbied very hard that we could use his name because I wanted to pay back to Juan uh, for everything he did to me. And what was the biggest thing is I was able to invite the family at the Hollywood premiere on the red carpet. They got to walk the red carpet. So just to show the respect and honor for Juan. And then my father, I, I did stay in touch with my father, um, mostly by telephone, by because he lived in the Chicago area, but then did get to visit him several times. And the last time I did see him, in fact, was when we went back in 1980 to bury the little boy, and he died a year later. You know, reading your book and talking to you the other day and watching the movie this week, I, I was just wondering how you could maintain the spirit that you maintain. A lot of people would become embittered and fail in life with a lot less adversity. How did you manage to prevent that from happening? Um, good surroundings, I guess, uh, people I work with. Uh, especially one of the things, uh, I was on what they call a fatal squad for the Arizona Highway Patrol. Uh, they developed a 10-man team, uh, gave us some of the most significant, magnificent training. You'd ever see college courses, uh, everything. And the average patrolman, he can investigate a fatal accident, but it will take him several weeks to put this together. He's got training, but not the specialized training that we had. And this takes him off the road, literally, for a couple of weeks. There's not a patrolman out there. And with the training we had, we were two-man teams. They would send us all over the state to these horrific fatal accidents. Um, just body parts all over the place. And after a while, that starts getting to you. And they didn't have counseling back in those days. But you found your own support group with, with your peers and that, that you could just say, wow, man, I'm going crazy on this. Well, let's talk about it. And fortunately, now they do have, you know, years later, where you go into the counselors and start talking about that. But I also happened to find a private, a friend that was a counselor. So I would go talk to her quite a bit too. Hey, I got to get these ghosts out of my head. So that's how we dealt with it. You know, uh, I was thinking this is a podcast about your leadership, but in some ways it's a podcast also, this episode about mentorship and the importance of mentorship. And you were surrounded by mentors. And without them, do you think your life would have been a lot different? Oh, definitely, definitely. And and one of the things, like even high school, when I moved from eighth grade going up to now this town of Prescott, a little bit bigger, different school system, and they wanted to put me back into eighth grade because of my math skills. Now I tried out for uh, freshman football, and the coach says, "Well, wow, you're going to be you're going to be on first team immediately," and but we're going to have to put you back to eighth grade. They said the coach said, "No, you're not. I'm going to work with him all summer." And then we're going to take the math test again, which I passed. But again, here's an example of something helping out. 
and always grateful for that. In fact, I still stay in touch with that coach. He's in his late 80s now, and I always get a kick talking to him. You now have a, a biography about you, and you have a movie that was made about your life, both called Wishman. You've gotten two honorary doctorates and dozens of awards and accolades. Looking back, do you have any thoughts about your life, where you were and where you are now, and the importance of adversity in creating leaders like yourself? Well, and, and all of the, it's character building. I mean, I had a lot of things, and I'm not so low, there's several kids, I'm sure, that went through the same thing, and they even do today. But it's all character building. It all develops integrity. I have no hard feelings of anything. That, in fact, I'm happy. I'm pleased with everything that's happened to me over my life. I never expected these awards. My wife says I need a, a bigger den because I'm running on a wall space. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but just, and again, this is something that I never thought about. I never saw it. And all of a sudden it's happening. Uh, I just had, uh, I don't know if I mentioned that to you, that I received my star on the walk of fame in Las Vegas. Congratulations. Big, big honor. Um, I'm just two stars down from Elvis Presley. <laughs> 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 who, who I had met in my earlier career. So that's kind of kind of fun to be there. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, I can I can honestly say that you are the first podcast guest here who has literally died and come back to life. So <laughs> that's just one reason I'm extremely pleased to have had this conversation with you. It's been great having you on the podcast. Thanks for being on it. Well, I appreciate being a guest and thank you again. I think it's particularly awesome to be able to talk to you during this Thanksgiving season when we all have so much to give thanks for and so many people to thank. And hearing you talk about gratitude, I think is a really important lesson for all of us. Yeah, and, and the message of the movie and in the book is everyone can be a hero. Just help somebody out, simple as that. And especially what you said with the holidays coming up, there's a lot of people that do need some help. Thank you very much. All right, so long. Frank Shankwitz is the award-winning creator and a co-founder of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, a global charity that fulfills the wishes of children with life-threatening illnesses. I highly recommend reading his book, Wishman, and watching the movie by the same name. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.